Part three of chapter six of the exploits of Brigadier Gerard by Sir Arthur Conan Doyle. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. It was midnight when I rode into Hof, but every window was blazing, which was enough in itself in that sleepy country to tell the ferment of excitement in which the people were. There was hooting and jeering as I rode through the crowded streets, and once a stone sang past my head, but I kept upon my way, neither slowing nor quickening my pace, until I came to the palace. It was lit from base to battlement, and the dark shadows coming and going against the yellow glare spoke of the turmoil within. For my part I handed my mare to a groom at the gate, and striding in I demanded, in such a voice as an ambassador should have, to see the prince instantly, upon business which would brook no delay. The hall was dark, but I was conscious as I entered of a buzz of innumerable voices which hushed into silence as I loudly proclaimed my mission. Some great meeting was being held then, a meeting which, as my instincts told me, was to decide this very question of war and peace. It was possible that I might still be in time to turn the scale for the Emperor and for France. As to the major-domo, he looked blackly at me, and showing me into a small antechamber, he left me. A minute later he returned to say that the prince could not be disturbed at present, but that the princess would take my message. The princess? What use was there in giving it to her? Had I not been warned that she was German in heart and soul, and that it was she who was turning her husband and her state against us? "'It is the prince that I must see,' said I. "'Nay, it is the princess,' said a voice at the door, and a woman stepped into the chamber. "'Von Rosen, you had best stay with us. "'Now, sir, what is it that you have to say to either prince or princess of Saxfelstein?' At the first sound of the voice I had sprung to my feet. At the first glance I had thrilled with anger. Not twice in a lifetime does one meet that noble figure, that queenly head and those eyes as blue as the Garonne, and as chilling as her winter waters. "'Time presses, sir,' she cried, with an impatient tap of her foot. "'What have you to say to me?' "'What have I to say to you?' I cried. "'What can I say, save that you have taught me never to trust a woman more? You have ruined and dishonoured me for ever.' She looked with arched brows at her attendant. "'Is this the raving of fever, or does it come from some less innocent cause?' said she. "'Perhaps a little bloodletting?' "'Ah, you can act,' I cried. "'You have shown me that already.' "'Do you mean that we have met before? "'I mean that you have robbed me within the last two hours.' "'This is past all bearing,' she cried, with an admirable affectation of anger. "'You claim, as I understand, to be an ambassador. "'But there are limits to the privileges which such an office brings with it.' "'You brazen it admirably,' said I. "'Your Highness will not make a fool of me twice in one night.' I sprang forward, and, stooping down, caught up the hem of her dress." "'You would have done well to change it after you had ridden so far and so fast,' said I. "'It was like the dawn upon a snow-peak to see her ivory cheeks flush suddenly to crimson. "'Insolent!' she cried, 
recall the foresters and having thrust from the palace. I will see the prince first. You will never see the prince. Ah, hold him, von Rosen, hold him. She had forgotten the man with whom she had to deal. Was it likely that I would wait until they could bring their rascals? She had shown me her cards too soon. Her game was to stand between me and her husband. Mine was to speak face to face with him at any cost. One spring took me out of the chamber. In another I had crossed the hall. An instant later I had burst into the great room from which the murmur of the meeting had come. At the far end I saw a figure upon a high chair under a daze. Beneath him was a line of high dignitaries, and then on every side I saw vaguely the heads of a vast assembly. Into the centre of the room I strode, my sabre clanking, my shako under my arm. I am the messenger of the Emperor, I shouted. I bear his message to His Highness the Prince of Saxfelstein. The man beneath the dais raised his head, and I saw that his face was thin and wan, and that his back was bowed as though some huge burden was balanced between his shoulders. Your name, sir? he asked. Colonel Etienne Gerard of the Third Hussars. Every face in the gathering was turned upon me, and I heard the rustle of the innumerable necks, and saw countless eyes without meeting one friendly one amongst them. The woman had swept past me and was whispering, with many shakes of her head and dartings of her hands, into the prince's ear. For my own part, I threw out my chest and curled my moustache, glancing round in my most debonair fashion at the assembly. They were men, all of them, professors from the college, a sprinkling of their students, soldiers, gentlemen, artisans, all very silent and serious. In one corner there sat a group of men in black with riding coats drawn over their shoulders. They leaned their heads to each other, whispering under their breath, and with every movement I caught the clank of their sabres or the clink of their spurs. The Emperor's private letter to me informs me that it is the Marquis Chateau Saint-Arnaud who is bearing his dispatches, said the Prince. The Marquis has been foully murdered, I answered, and a buzz rose up from the people as I spoke. Many heads were turned, I noticed, towards the dark men in the cloaks. Where are your papers? asked the Prince. I have none. A fierce clamour rose instantly around me. He is a spy! He plays a part! they cried. Hang him! roared a deep voice from the corner, and a dozen others took up the shout. For my part, I drew out my handkerchief and nicked the dust from the fur of my police. The prince held out his thin hands, and the tumult died away. Where, then, are your credentials, and what is your message? My uniform is my credential, and my message is for your private ear. He passed his hand over his forehead with the gesture of a weak man, who is at his wit's end what to do. The princess stood beside him, with her hand upon his throne, and again whispered in his ear, We are here in council together, some of my trusty subjects and myself, said he. I have no secrets from them, and whatever message the emperor may send to me at such a time concerns their interests no less than mine. There was a hum of applause at this, and every eye was turned once more upon me. My faith, it was an awkward position in which I found myself, for it is one thing to address eight hundred hussars, 
and another to speak to such an audience on such a subject. But I fixed my eyes upon the prince, and tried to say just what I should have said if we had been alone, shouting it out too, as though I had my regiment on parade. "'You have often expressed friendship for the emperor,' I cried. "'It is now at last that his friendship is about to be tried. "'If you will stand firm, he will reward you, as only he can reward. "'It is an easy thing for him to turn a prince into a king and a province into a power. "'His eyes are fixed upon you, and though you can do little to harm him, you can ruin yourself.' At this moment he is crossing the Rhine with two hundred thousand men. Every fortress in the country is in his hands. He will be upon you in a week, and if you have played him false, God help both you and your people. You think that he is weakened because a few of us got the chilblains last winter? Look there, I cried, pointing to a great star which blazed through the window above the prince's head. That is the emperor's star. When it wanes, he will wane, but not before. You would have been proud of me, my friends, if you could have seen and heard me, for I clashed my sabre as I spoke and swung my dolman, as though my regiment was picketed outside in the courtyard. They listened to me in silence, but the back of the prince bowed more and more, as though the burden which weighed upon it was greater than his strength. He looked round with haggard eyes. We have heard a Frenchman speak for France, said he. Let us have a German speak for Germany. The folk glanced at each other and whispered to their neighbours. My speech, as I think, had its effect, and no man wished to be the first to commit himself in the eyes of the Emperor. The Princess looked round her with blazing eyes, and her clear voice broke the silence. Is a woman to give this Frenchman his answer? she cried. Is it possible, then, that among the light riders of Lutso there is none who can use his tongue as well as his sabre? Over went a table with a crash, and a young man had bounded upon one of the chairs. He had the face of one inspired, pale, eager, with wild hawk eyes and tangled hair. His sword hung straight from his side, and his riding boots were brown with mire. "'It is Corner,' the people cried. "'It is young Corner, the poet. "'Ah, he will sing, he will sing!' "'And he sang. "'It was soft at first and dreamy, "'telling of old Germany, the mother of nations, "'of the rich warm plains and the grey cities "'and the fame of dead heroes. "'But then verse after verse rang like a trumpet call. "'It was of the Germany of now, "'the Germany which had been taken unawares and overthrown, but which was up again and snapping the bonds upon her giant limbs. What was life that one should covet it? What was glorious death that one should shun it? The mother, the great mother, was calling. Her sigh was in the night wind. She was crying to her own children for help. Would they come? Would they come? Would they come? Ah, that terrible song, the spirit face and the ringing voice. Where were I and France and the Emperor? They did not shout, these people. They howled. They were up on the chairs and the tables. They were raving, sobbing, the tears running down their faces. Corner had sprung from the chair, and his comrades were round him with their sabres in the air. A flush had come into the pale face of the prince, and he rose from his throne. Colonel Gerard, said he, you have heard the answer which you are to carry to your emperor. The die is cast, my children. 
your prince and you must stand or fall together. He bowed to show that all was over, and the people, with a shout, made for the door to carry the tidings into the town. For my own part I had done all that a brave man might, and so I was not sorry to be carried out amid the stream. Why should I linger in the palace? I had had my answer, and must carry it, such as it was. I wished neither to see Hoff nor its people again until I entered it at the head of a vanguard. I turned from the throng then, and walked silently and sadly in the direction in which they had led the mare. It was dark down there by the stables, and I was peering round for the hostler, when suddenly my two arms were seized from behind, there were hands at my wrists and at my throat, and I felt the cold muzzle of a pistol under my ear. "'Keep your lips closed, you French dog,' whispered a fierce voice. "'We have him, Captain. Have you the bridle? Here it is. Sling it over his head.' I felt the cold coil of leather tighten round my neck, and Hostler with a stable lantern had come out and was gazing upon the scene. In its dim light I saw stern faces breaking everywhere through the gloom, with the black caps and dark cloaks of the night riders. "'What would you do with him, Captain?' cried a voice. "'Hang him at the palace gate.' "'An ambassador?' "'An ambassador without papers.' "'But the prince!' "'Tut, man! Do you not see that the prince will then be committed to our side? He will be beyond all hope of forgiveness.' At present he may swing round tomorrow as he has done before. He may eat his words, but a dead hussar is more than he can explain. No, no, von Strelitz, we cannot do it, said another voice. Can we not? I shall show you that. And there came a jerk on the bridle, which nearly pulled me to the ground. At the same instant a sword flashed, and the leather was cut through within two inches of my neck. By heaven, corner, this is rank mutiny! cried the captain. You may hang yourself before you're through with it. I have drawn my sword as a soldier and not as a brigand, said the young poet. Blood may dim its blade, but never dishonour. Comrades, will you stand by and see this gentleman mishandled? A dozen sabres flew from their sheaths, and it was evident that my friends and my foes were about equally balanced. But the angry voices and the gleam of steel had brought the folk running from all parts. "'The princess!' they cried. "'The princess is coming!' And even as they spoke I saw her in front of us, her sweet face framed in the darkness. I had cause to hate her, for she had cheated and befooled me, and yet it thrilled me then, and thrills me now, to think that my arms have embraced her, and that I have felt the scent of her hair in my nostrils. I know not whether she lies under her German earth, or whether she still lingers, a grey-haired woman in her castle of Hof, but she lives ever, young and lovely, in the heart and memory of Etienne Gerard. "'For shame!' she cried, sweeping up to me and tearing with her own hands the noose from my neck. "'You are fighting in God's own quarrel, and yet you would begin with such a devil's deed as this? This man is mine, and he who touches a hair of his head will answer for it to me.' They were glad enough to slink off into the darkness, before those scornful eyes. Then she turned once more to me. "'You can follow me, Colonel Gerard,' she said. "'I have a word that I would speak to you.' I walked behind her to the chamber into which I had originally been shown. She closed the door and then looked at me with the archest twinkle in her eyes. 
"'Is it not confiding of me to trust myself with you?' said she. "'You will remember that it is the Princess of Saxfelstein, "'and not the poor Countess Pelotta of Poland.' "'Be the name what it might,' I answered. "'I helped a lady whom I believed to be in distress, "'and I have been robbed of my papers and almost of my honour as a reward.' "'Colonel Gerard,' said she, "'We have been playing a game, you and I, and the stake was a heavy one. "'You have shown, by delivering a message which was never given to you, "'that you would stand at nothing in the cause of your country. "'My heart is German, and yours is French, "'and I also would go all lengths, even to deceit and to theft, "'if at this crisis I could help my suffering fatherland. "'You see how frank I am? "'You tell me nothing that I have not seen.' "'But now the game is played and won. "'Why should we bear malice? "'I will say this, that if ever I were in such a plight "'as that which I pretended in the inn of Lobenstein, "'I should never wish to meet a more gallant protector "'or a truer-hearted gentleman than Colonel Etienne Gerard. "'I had never thought that I could feel for a Frenchman "'as I felt for you when I slipped the papers from your breast. "'But you took them none the less. They were necessary to me, and to Germany. I knew the arguments which they contained, and the effect which they would have upon the prince. If they had reached him, all would have been lost. Why should your highness descend to such expedients, when a score of these brigands, who wished to hang me at your castle gate, would have done the work as well? They are not brigands, but the best blood of Germany, she cried hotly. If you have been roughly used, you will remember the indignities to which every German has been subjected, from the Queen of Prussia downwards. As to why I did not have you waylaid upon the road, I may say that I had parties out on all sides, and that I was waiting at Lobenstein to hear of their success. When instead of their news you yourself arrived, I was in despair, for there was only the one weak woman betwixt you and my husband.' You see the straits to which I was driven before I used the weapon of my sex. I confess that you have conquered me, Your Highness, and it only remains for me to leave you in possession of the field. But you will take your papers with you. She held them out to me as she spoke. The Prince has crossed the Rubicon now. Nothing can bring him back. You can return these to the Emperor and tell him that we refuse to receive them. No one can accuse you then of having lost your dispatches. Good-bye, Colonel Gerard, and the best I can wish you is that when you reach France you may remain there. In a year's time there will be no place for a Frenchman upon this side of the Rhine. And thus it was that I played the Princess of Saxfelstein with all Germany for a stake and lost my game to her. I had much to think of as I walked my poor tired Violetta along the highway which leads westward from Hof. But amid all the thoughts there came back to me always the proud, beautiful face of the German woman, and the voice of the soldier poet as he sang from the chair. And I understood then that there was something terrible in this strong, patient Germany, this mother root of nations. And I saw that such a land, so old and so beloved, never could be conquered. And as I rode I saw the dawn was breaking, and that the great star at which I had pointed through the palace window was dim and pale in the western sky. 
End of chapter 6